Welcome to the Truth Nation podcast, episode number seven. My name is Bill Bodner. With me is the chief, the one and only, Mark Garrett. How are you, Mark? I'm doing great, Bill. Thank God there's only one of me. The earth couldn't take two. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's a, I would take a couple of you. Well, the man of low standards. <laughs> right. Mark, we're going to talk today about privatized policing. And mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe some people think of that and they think, oh, security companies, whatever security guards to be specific, but really privatized policing is uh, a huge industry in this country. It's a growing industry. Um, I think in our show today, we will point to some very specific reasons dating back to 2020, why it's a growing industry. And we will talk about what this move towards privatized policing is, is doing to the underserved. Now I want to start with a, a quick story about a case that happened here in Los Angeles back in, I think, July of last year. And I have a press release here from the U.S. Attorney's Office. I'll be using that to highlight the case. So there was a gentleman named Ryan Scott Bradford, and he was arrested and charged with a collection of drug and ammunition-related offenses. The allegation was that he had espoused a great deal of anti-Semitic hate over the internet and had called for the mass murder of Jews. He was in search warrant served at his house by FBI, LAPD. He was in possession of auto sears, Glock switches, basically things to make semi-automatic firearms fully automatic. He had some drugs and drug paraphernalia at his house, I believe. The press release released by the U.S. Attorney's Office, intimates that he was a member of the San Fernando Valley Peckerwoods. Now, that is a racially motivated, violent extremist group. You're nodding your head. I'm sure you've heard of them from your days. So so you Our, might ask, like, a what couple over the this, years. Yeah, what does this have to do with privatized policing? Well, I've heard that the lead that went to the FBI to pursue this case came from a privately funded intelligence watch center okay so this was a center that is funded with 100 percent private donations they monitor anti-semitic hate over social media and they catalog it they they capture it retain it and then they more or less my understanding is they build almost like a like a background on a person that's that's espousing that information And when they see that there is perhaps some imminent threat to the community, they do what any good citizen would do, right? We've heard see something, say something. They reported it to the FBI. And I don't know exactly what information was reported and how much the FBI has to do to corroborate that information independently. But a search warrant was served and this dangerous person was taken off the street. Now, this is the first that I had ever heard of something like this, right? A privately funded watch center funded by like one particular part of a community to quote, protect their, their own people. And it's interesting because I know one thing that you talk about a lot is, Hey, you are your first responder and everyone has the, everyone really has the obligation to protect themselves, their family first. And here's a group collecting private money and not leaving their safety in the hands of the government. They're saying, we're going to be proactive. And keep in mind, this is before October 7th, when the the threat level obviously went up for people in the Jewish community. 
But they're saying, we're not going to leave our security in the hands of the government. We're going to take proactive steps. We're going to raise money and we're going to create an intelligence center and do what we can to track what's going on in our community and then put that information out there. So as I started to look into this a little more, I found other organizations that kind of do the same thing. And, and there's many different facets to privatized policing. But these, I, this, this one is very, very unique, and that's that it's an intelligence operation. And hey, I do not know what they pay the people at the center. And I haven't named the center because I don't want to, I don't want to create any press toward them or hate now directed at them or whatever. Uh, but here's what I can tell you. A, a senior intel analyst at the DEA, I know they make about $120,000 a year. And if there's a couple analysts working at this center, probably of the same capability skill level, all of a sudden that this costs real money to set a facility like this up. There's monitor, computer monitoring software, things to scour and uh, digest what's happening in social media and categorize everything and, and help them identify threats. It's a very costly thing. And uh, again, fascinating that this group has taken it on their own to go out and be proactive and to protect themselves in the community. Another group I found, now this one I will name only because they're a lot more public. There's been articles written about them in the news. It's called the Community Security Services. And it is a nonprofit organization that provides security to the Jewish community in the United States. And what they do is training. They will give you a training on basically close protection, training on how to uh, secure a facility, uh, self-defense training, awareness training. Again, training people to be uh, more capable of being their own first responders. And I don't know if you've ever heard of privatized policing spoken about in those terms, but I thought that was a, a fascinating, really a fascinating part of this topic is, hey, we've, we've always had security guards. What we haven't had is proactive pieces of, priorita of uh, privatized policing, like training and intelligence operations. Have you heard of, of, of either of th those two things going on in your time? Uh, I have, to some extent, the, the, the groups you're talking about now are at a higher level than what I'm used to, but I've, I've heard about this on smaller, smaller scales. There is one group I'm very familiar with. It's not uh, policing specifically, but it is emergency services. Now, again, it's, it's, these, are, these are not law enforcement related. It was specifically EMS, emergency services, medical services. I came across this, and again, I think this is germane to, to this general topic about taking on some of their responsibilities at the individual or community level, Bill. About, I guess now about 13 years ago, when I was lieutenant at the, the West, West LA CHP office, I was a brand new lieutenant, I got a call one night from Beverly Hills Police Department about a traffic collision involving an ambulance. And I'm thinking, why is Beverly Hills Police Department calling me, California High Patrol Lieutenant, to come investigate a traffic accident in their community involving an ambulance? It was really bizarre. I really couldn't get a clear answer over the phone. So I and one of my sergeants rolled out about nine o'clock at night. And what it turned out to be was this ambulance was, was a private 
company, which is not unusual. But it turns out that this was a, a, an a organization completely made up of individual citizens in a particular community. They had no relationship to LA County Fire, or LA City Fire, or Beverly Hills Fire Department, things like this. They were their own entity. And they had a network of citizens that voluntarily, of course, funded them, all went into a pool. And so when someone was having a medical emergency, they didn't feel that maybe the government system was going to be fast enough for services mm -hmm. and they would call this private and these were all these were paramedics and emts all the personnel on these vehicles and they would roll out there at least before if not a conjunction with uh government services the reason that high patrol was called is because apparently the chp at some point had authorized it bought off on on certifying these vehicles as actual emergency vehicle uh response platforms way above my head all that happened i can't remember all the details but it just goes to this whole the, the whole uh, topic here about the your self-policing and private policing and private services so i've seen it on that that level but on the ems side yeah it's interesting i've heard of that company actually mark and i had forgotten about it till you just brought it up and i do remember that company and what they're about and that's, that's a great example of it let me let me read uh, real quick from a yahoo news story came out at the beginning of May earlier this year. And it, I guess it sets the groundwork as to why privatized policing is growing right now, why there's more and more of it. And it's going to be really interesting for me to get you involved in parts of this conversation, because I think I already know how you feel about some of these things. Maybe. Yeah. Already struggling to recruit new applicants in 2019, Police departments saw a spike of retirements and a drop-off in new recruits after the 2020 murder of George Floyd in subsequent backlash against the police, said Chuck Wexler, the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum. In Philadelphia alone, police staffing levels dropped nearly 10% from the end of 2019 to the end of 22. So that's that's basically over 2021 and 22, three-year period. Mm -hmm. uh, a recent government audit had found it. Nationally, the number of sworn officers dropped 7% between 2019 and 2021, according to the FBI data. The Los Angeles Police Department is not meeting its staffing goals, for instance, but its neighbor, Beverly Hills, California, has hired two security firms whose employees patrol the city in cars or on foot as an extension of the police says Todd Johnson, CEO of the Beverly Hills Chamber of Commerce. In the last two years, with everything we have gone through, we want to make sure that the luxury capital of the world is also one of the safest places, Johnson says. So, you know, this, this is ex perfectly in line with what I saw in law enforcement over that time where we had senior people, Mark, who just got a little fed up and said, hey, it's time for me to move on. I'm done. I'm retiring. A lot of experience went with it. Extremely hard to attract new recruits. Who wants to go in policing when the occupation is being uh, eviscerated on the evening news every month? And what happens? We can't hire. We can't retain. We can't meet staffing goals. That's when privatization comes, right? Mm -hmm. And why is that? It's because 
I have specific examples of it that I'll get into, get into in a little bit. But when, when you defund the police, you're not defunding all the police, Mark. You're really having a disproportionate impact on underserved communities because they do not have the money that you just... There was just an example in this, in this Yahoo story. LAPD can't really, can't really put the number of officers on the street they want to, yet Beverly Hills was able to go out and contract security people to, to make up the difference. So it's a fascinating thing that's growing incredibly, incredibly fast. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing that's growing tremendously these days. And part of it is because we've defunded the police and people in wealthier communities are saying that's not the solution. We are going to actually give private funding to the departments to keep our level of police services up. Uh, your thought, your experience with that? Is that what's going on in this country right now? Yeah. Pay the, for the, policing? Yeah, the irony is so thick with this, with the defund the, the police um, movement. Go back a little bit. You, you referenced Todd Johnson, who's the president of the Beverly Hills Chamber of Commerce. And uh, Todd, just in the uh, interest of full disclosure, Todd and I have been very good friends for about oh, over 15 years. And I just happened to talk to Todd Um had no idea that you were going to quote him in that that uh, article. But I talked to Todd just just a few days ago about Beverly Hills PD staffing. We're talking about something else, probably sports, but we ended up on this topic. And the actual police department is near max staffing levels now. And there, and one of the reasons is is because they pay as well as anybody in the state of California, uh, just just about, and they can actually recruit people to come in there. In other words, the financial incentives are so, are so large there in Beverly Hills, they can do it. But on top of that, like you said, they have also integrated the private security forces into that city. Now, this did come specifically out. And again, I was there in, I was there in Los Angeles County. I was all over Los Angeles County to the George Floyd riots as a chief. And Beverly Hills was getting hit hard during that summer of 2020. And so they were looking for all kinds of resources to supplement who they had. It's not very large law enforcement uh, number of personnel there in their city. So they sought out private companies. They were contracting with other small agencies from around Southern California to come in and supplement their police department. So in fact, the, the Ohio Patrol even went in for a little bit and on our own dime. We didn't charge anything for it to help them mm -hmm. out for a day or two. But having said that, this goes right to what you're talking about, Bill, about the underserved communities. The communities who could afford the least to have their departments depleted through defunding are the ones that got defunded the worst and are suffering the most. Here's the, iron the irony I talked about being so thick. A lot of the, and reading articles and just learning this over the last year, watching, listening, and reading articles the last few years since George Floyd, so many of the groups, the advocacy groups, the spokespeople for this faction or that faction, and for I'm concerned, the cop haters, so many of the same people that supported defunding resulting in higher crimes in those underserved communities are also outspoken about the implementation of so-called private cops. Yep. And, and this is the irony. Yep. Again, they're setting the fire. They're pouring gasoline on the fire. And then they're complaining is no one comes to put to put it out. 
And I said, it's, it's almost too much to stomach. It absolutely is sickening. And we can get into some of the details and history of, of private policing and what it means today in a practical sense. But the communities who can least afford, and when I say afford, who can least sustain a reduction in law enforcement personnel are the ones that are getting hit the hardest with this entire movement and in the pushback against privatizing law enforcement. Now, by the way, I want to say this from the outset, at the outset, that I am not a big fan of, quote unquote, privatized policing. We can get into to why, but that's a general statement. That's a general statement. We can get into the details about what works and what doesn't. But generally speaking, uh, I'm, I'm a big supporter of traditional government-sponsored law enforcement. Mark, you mentioned there something that I got to follow up on. It was how the people who were calling for defund the police are now the most critical of the privatized policing thing. Let, let me talk to you a, a second about Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, so in Chicago, officer, no, one of, as far as violent gun crime, Mark, fair to say Chicago is one of the, the most uh, violent cities in the country right now? It's I'd say so. Definitely top 10. I don't know if it's top three, top five, maybe not, but definitely uh, a lot of handgun issues in Chicago. Officers may work off-duty patrolling neighborhoods for private security companies, but they generally do not wear their police uniforms or represent themselves as police officers. The growing presence of off-duty officers in upscale Chicago neighborhoods has drawn concern from, guess who? Now, this is an older article from Mayor Lori Lightfoot, when she was, obviously, she's not the mayor anymore. Who Beetlejuice, said she, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Yeah, who Sorry, said, go ahead who said she didn't want a, quote, circumstance where public safety is only available to the wealthy. She added, that's a terrible dynamic. Mark, as you just said, who created this dynamic? That, that like, the people that have the wherewithal, the financial wherewithal to feel safe in their neighborhoods, they're going to exercise that financial wherewithal. October 26, 2020, about two years earlier, Chicago mayor proposed an $80 million cut to the police budget and cut 400 officer spots. That was, that was what she uh, was in favor of. So you tell me, how can you be someone in favor of exactly like you said, how can you be someone in favor of cutting police services and then complain that some people in the community have taken it upon themselves to find these services from elsewhere or to contract privately from these for these services. Yeah, well, I'll tell you exactly how you can do it. It's when you're 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 when you're purely ideological. When when you come out as a cop hater, when you say that law enforcement is the problem, when you say that law enforcement is systemically racist, when you say that law enforcement is made up of a, a white supremacy foundation and, and, and hierarchy and legacy, when you say these things, you will do things as idiotic as calling for the defunding of police. And then again, when the crap hits the fan, then you want to correct the problem by going back to the equity card. Every outcome is the same for everybody, no matter what their behavior is. And this goes to what you're talking about. Of, Wait a minute. If the more affluent communities or neighborhoods or individuals now can pay for private policing, pri private security, when you, the government, have taken away, have taken away the general law enforcement, 
Now you're going to call me or call us, this community, the bad people. This is unfair. It's not equitable. This is insanity. This is how you do it. When you don't use common sense, you're not an objective thinker. And when you don't believe in the rule of law, you only become, you only believe in outcome-based policies. This is exactly how it happens. By the way, moving forward, we thought that when Lori Lightfoot left, then things would maybe, maybe see a curve up. But the dingling who replaced her makes her look like George Washington. So that's just <laughs> the editorial. Other, the other thing, Mark, aside from the financial support, like we talked about Beverly Hills, or you, you talked about Beverly Hills, them being staffed full of officers or almost at 100% staffing, they have the ability to pay a little more, right? But also don't forget, and I think there's a key part of that in Beverly Hills where the community supports law enforcement. And in some communities, they just support law enforcement, and that makes it easier to recruit in those communities or easier to find officers who want to work in those communities. Yeah, it's a great point, Bill. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating that, that people actually want to work where they're wanted? Who, who would have thunk such a thing? But in other words, you make such a great point. It, 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 it seems, though, it seems to escape the minds of people who are so-called in charge, because I don't think many people are in charge of anything, starting with their own faculties in elective office right now. But people talk about inclusiveness and, and all these throwaway ridiculous terms, but they don't apply to some of the most fundamental elements of society. In other words, let's make sure law enforcement knows they're wanted here. That would be a basic thing in recruitment. I'll tell you right now, when, when I went into the Ohio Patrol, when I applied the Ohio Patrol, I, I give you my word, I wasn't going there for the money. Now, again, I was going there for a career and I knew it'd be a decent income for the rest of my life, but I wasn't going there to get rich. I was going there. And by the way, the Ohio Patrol is the only agency I applied for. And the reason is, because in my opinion, they have the best reputation of any, of, of any local or state county law enforcement agency, certainly in California, where I wanted to stay at the time. But I went there because I I wanted to I I thought I would be happy with the Ohio Patrol and I thought I would be happy serving my community. That's why I went into law enforcement, only applied to the California Ohio Patrol. But if you have an entire large segment of the population of our civilization that is condemning law enforcement. Aside from pay, it's not going to encourage anybody to go into that profession, or it's going to encourage fewer people. It's going to stir, discourage a lot of people to go in from law enforcement. Again, and the same people who are discouraging people from going to law enforcement are the same people that want to make sure that any other remedies to keeping communities safe are shut down. Yeah. So, so one of the things I saw in, we talked about, private intel centers. We've now talked about of cities that can have, they can contract for additional patrols in certain neighborhoods or, or whatever the case. Let me ask you a question. Turn back the clock. Let's say you're a lieutenant in West LA, or let's say you're the captain in of the LA region. And four of your officers who moonlight for a 
private security company, while they're on duty, they get an email about uh, a stolen car. It, their, their moonlighting job is something to do with auto theft, okay? And I think it's reasonable, hey, CHP could obviously be involved in something like that. While they're on duty, they get an email about a stolen vehicle, and they're told, hey, there's a $1,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of this vehicle, or if you can find out who, who has this vehicle, who stole this vehicle. The vehicle gets recovered by one of these deputies, or I'm sorry, one of these officers who's on the clock working for you, but also moonlights sometimes for this other company after hours. Is there, do you see any kind of conflict there? Because I'm going to get into some stories of the St. Louis Police Department. And before I do, I wanted to hear from you. Like, do you see where that could be problematic when the mix between privatized policing and public policing becomes so intertwined that it's almost all happening at the same time? It's a, it's a great hypothetical. And let me tell you why, Bill. You always come up with these great things that just, you know, get my mind going. I told you the Higher Patrol was the only agency I applied for. It was for a reason. They had a great reputation. That reputation did not, nor does it now, come by chance. It's the result of a lot of hard work and a lot of adherence to very ethical policies and procedures. One of those policies is, is that Higher Patrol officers can have secondary employment, and when it's approved, obviously by chain of command, but one of the things that's absolutely forbidden for a Higher Patrol officer to do off-duty is to perform any job that requires the use of their firearm. And that's, again, it's probably not unique, but it's, it's a pretty narrow band of agencies that have such strict secondary employment rules. And by the way, there are a number of secondary employment options that are not available to high patrol officers. The reason I tell you about the CHP policy is it goes to exactly what you're talking about, about mixing the two, your on-duty and off-duty, your police powers, and what rights or rights you don't have as a, as a private investigator as opposed to a sworn peace officer. So this is exactly why, why the Higher Patrol has such a narrow, a narrow set of options for secondary employment. I knew you are going to get into St. Louis. Let me give you an example about probably something you're going to touch on, but you'll be, I'm sure, uh, in more detail. So when I worked, when I left the Higher Patrol, when I worked in private industry for a financial institution, mm -hmm. one of my roles was to contract with private security guard companies across the, the territories where we actually had facilities with this financial institution. Well, one of those territories allowed, and I won't say what state, I won't yeah. say where, but one of those territories allowed, one of those law enforcement agencies in our territory allowed those officers to work in their department uniform mm -hmm. with their department vehicle off-duty in private security. And I actually went to visit one of our facilities and met with one of the officers who actually was a sergeant. And when I met him, I didn't go to meet him. I was there just during our facility, and he was there working security. And when I met with him, he was in uniform. I saw his patrol car parked outside. And I said, hey, did, 
did you guys, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Mark Garrett. I'm head of security for the company here and blah, blah, blah. I'm just here on a trip to visit to get to know the employees. And I said, did we get a call? Was it a disturbance? Or he goes, no, no, no. He goes, sir, I'm your security guard. I said, I'm looking at the patch, the city he works for. Right. <laughs> I, go, I, I said, well, I knew, I knew that we contracted with off-duty officers from your agency. I said, but no, 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 we can work it. And we work it on duty and blah, blah, whatever in a uniform. I was astounded, especially coming from the culture of the Ohio patrol where even off duty in your plain clothes, you couldn't carry your gun if it was required for the parameters of the off, off duty. So anyway, this goes to what you're talking about, mixing the two. I think it's a very, very dangerous thing. I think you can open a whole can of worms. I'm sure you're going to get into it, but that's my perspective on it. Yeah, talk, talk a little bit about St. Louis, where just like that city you just mentioned. So in St. Louis, and again, this is as of September 2022. This is an article that I read from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So have things changed since then? Have things changed since then? I actually don't think so, because this has been going on for quite some time, and there has been a lot of conversation generated about it, and commitments to look at it, and commitments to audit it, but, but it doesn't seem to have changed that much. In St. Louis, the officers work off-duty jobs in full uniform. Uh, they have full police powers. They make they can make arrests and and car stops, etc. So I'm gonna read a little I'm gonna read a little piece from this article and it'll um, you know explain how we're getting to this this place that we are now where where policing is almost the quality of policing, and I want to make this clear, it's not because of the police departments. The quality of the policing is dependent on income level because of the defund the police movement, right? Mm -hmm. uh, after hours of burglary at a designer jean store in St. Louis's upscaled Central West End neighborhood, at least 16 city police officers received an email alert with surveillance photos of a car believed to belong to the suspects and an offer of a reward of at least $1,000 for any officer able to locate it. The email was not from St. Louis Metro Police, the police force that employs them and that residents fund their taxes with. Instead, it was from a retired city police detective named Charles Betts, who also employs them at his private company, The City's Finest. The city's finest is not a mere security firm with about 200 officers moonlighting for it. It's the biggest of several private policing companies that some of St. Louis's wealthier and predominantly white neighborhoods have hired to patrol public spaces and protect their homes and businesses. These neighborhoods buy patrols from Betts firm and other private police companies because they say they do not get enough from a city police department that struggles to provide basic services. Here's the specifics that make this department differ than, uh, different than highway patrol, Mark. Under department rules, officers have the same authority when working for these companies that they have while on duty. One reason their services are in such demand. They can investigate crimes, stop pedestrians or vehicles, and make arrests. The police department requires that they wear their police uniforms when they're working in law enforcement or security in the city, creating confusion about who they're working for at any particular moment. The result is two unequal levels of policing for St. Louis residents and businesses. Low income in minor minority residents 
do not have the resources to hire police through a private company, and the department has struggled to provide patrols in parts of the city that suffer the highest rates of violent crime. Uh, in the more affluent neighborhoods, which are less affected by violent crime, have raised millions of dollars privately to pay companies like the city's finest for granular attention from the same officers the police department has said it doesn't have enough of. So one point of clarification on that is they make it sound in that article like, hey, the city has said they don't have enough police officers, yet they have these officers working for a private firm. The reality is they don't have the money, Mark, to pay the overtime. That's right. what the reality is. If they had the money to pay the overtime, I, maybe it would get into a bidding war. I don't know. That's possible where the private company is trying to offer more money than the department can for overtime to pull those officers away from the department. But, but here's an interesting thing. For all the complaints about this in St. Louis, right? May 3rd, 2021, the mayor and city controller voted to cut $4 million from the police department budget and eliminate 100 officer positions. So how can you do that and then complain that you have a two-tier justice system created by a, a, lack of, a lack of resources for the police department? Explain to me how that, how that works. Yeah, well, it doesn't work. It's illogical. And of course, it goes right back to the Lori Lightfoot Chicago scenario where you have, and I know I use the word a lot, and damn it, I hope it sinks in. This is when ideology outweighs common sense and and following through on your oath to protect and serve. I'm using LAPD's model there, but that that when you're an elected official, when you're city council person or you're, you know, you are a, a supervisor, you're a mayor, you're a city manager, you have an oath to actually protect and to serve the community for which you work. And if you are cutting these services at the same time complaining about not having enough, to me, this is simply uh, virtual signaling. See, we're, we're defunding the police. We're going to go ahead and cut back. We're going to divert these uh, millions of dollars to other services and to other to resources, social uh, programs, things like this. To me, it's virtual signaling. And then you go back and complain, like you said, about, well, we're understaffed. It's schizophrenic. And this is what happens when people simply don't sit back and take responsibility for the jobs they're supposed to be doing. And I'm talking about the elected officials. I'm talking about chiefs of police. That's what I'm talking about. It all starts with them. So to, to answer your question, Bill, again, I said, I don't know how people do this. I don't know how you sleep at night when you try to have one foot in each camp here. But this is what happens. This is what causes chaos. So on a finer point about these officers working overtime in uniform, their police vehicles, they have full peace officer powers. Um, this is, this is to me, this is why these types of relationships, these types of allowances when it comes to secondary employment, they can be very dangerous. Look, it's, it's, if these guys and gals are working off duty, but they're in uniform, I'm telling you right now, there's no difference in their mind about who they are. To them, they are still cops. They are still cops, and they're going to do everything that they would do normally 
um, if they were actually on the clock with their particular agency. The problem is this. There's lots of problems. One of the problems is this. Like, and you actually said it. Who do they actually work for? Who do they actually report to? It, we could get so deep in the weeds about this, about the the stretching and the pulling of 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 loyalties. I don't mean loyalty in the emotional sense, but in other words, as far as responsibilities, who you're actually responsible to. This is why even when officers are working on task forces, so you you have the DEA, you have ATF, you have FBI, uh, California Highway Patrol, LAPD, LA County Sheriff's Department, you have them working on a task force. It's incumbent upon each supervisor who lets one of their officers join a task force about, okay, who actually are you going to be reporting to? Which policies are you going to be following? How will this affect your culture as an LAPD officer or a CHP officer or FBI or LA County Sheriff? Um, who is going to be who's going to be responsible for your training to keep you updated if you're gone for six months at a time as task force? These are all the questions that people ask in law enforcement, at least responsible people in law enforcement ask, even when the relationships are intra-law enforcement, other agencies, even in those circumstances. People can start to sway. They can start to 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 drift away, stray from their roots in a particular agency. So much more so if you're dealing with the with your agency and private sector, because private sector clients really have no experience in law enforcement, and they're going to ask for things that maybe law enforcement officers should not be doing off duty. So that's a long winded answer, but. It is so complex, and these are the dangers that we can that we can realize when you're trying to start to mix the two. I'm not saying there's no room for private security or quote unquote private law enforcement, but they have to be bifurcated. They have to be in a mutual supportive role, not intermingled. One thing I've seen that cities will do, Mark, is they will, and it's it's very different than what's going on in St. Louis. St. Louis, it's so mixed together, Mark, that the private the cars that this company, City's Finest, is that what it was called? Yes, yes. That the finest. cars that they use actually have, the, some of them have the word police on them. Yeah. Yeah, it really creates confusion as to who's who. Hey, how I have seen this work, and technically, like, you could argue that in parts of L.A. County, there's, the sheriffs have been contracted, right, to patrol a particular area. And I don't know if you've ever gotten in the weeds on some of those contracts. But yes. Oh, yeah. Hey, oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, Definitely. You, you want X number of cars, that's going to cost you this. You want an extra car, it's going to cost you this. You want an extra detective or whatever, it's going to cost you this. So there are added expenditures for each. Each. It's not like you're paying, you pay one price and you have, you know, blanket coverage that is is probably everything you need. But where I've seen distinctions made is where the leadership of the police department will make the decisions about where these extra resources go. That's very different than St. Louis, because uh, to be blunt, from what I saw in St. Louis, the, the resources that the community is privately funding with, or, or the, the the policing that results from this privatization in St. Louis, it's not going in the high crime areas. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. there's actually police officers working this side job, right? 
that's not helping address the true violent crime problem in the city. Uh, that's weird. That's weird. And I've seen some cities really push hard away from that, where if it's going to be, if, if the mix is going to be that tight with uh, off-duty officers, that the department is going to maintain the authority to direct where those officers will go and, and what they'll do. Yeah, it's a, it, 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 it makes total sense. And, and I, I dealt a lot with this in Los Angeles County as I moved up higher in management with territories where the Ohio Patrol would overlap with Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And so we would share a lot of territories, Ohio Patrol, primarily traffic enforcement with the county sheriffs dealing with more of the traditional crime with breaking and entering and assaults and things like this and murders and so forth and so on. And so through that, that mutual kind of responsibility for territories, I, I'd be at meetings and talk to other people and, and really get in, into the weeds about contracts. And what you says is, is exactly right about more resources. So just so people understand from, from my experience, there are a lot of counties in Los Angeles or, or a lot of cities that are not incorporated, say in Los Angeles County. So they're a city, but they don't have their own law enforcement agency. They don't have their own fire agency. So they'll contract with the county. What you said about sending the resources to where the problems are, it's exactly right. The, not only, not only the law enforcement agency, not only the law enforcement manager saying, okay, we'll contract, we'll do the contract. Here's what it'll cost, blah, blah, blah. And here's where we're going to patrol because they want to fix the problem. But also generally speaking, that community who was who was asking for the resources, they were asking for the resources for the same reason and for the same geographic area. We would like for your your deputies to patrol these areas. So that's that's exactly right. But this this goes to the private side is that when you are dealing with specifically private security, we could use the phrase law enforcement, but I, I want to say private security. That is and should be very, very narrow, very specific. So a person or a financial institution or maybe it, even an, an educational institution might want to hire a, a, a person or a number of security guards specifically for a, a very narrow purpose. And that's different than general law enforcement that we're talking about here where you're mixing the two, which I don't like. Yeah, it's not you're not hiring. Uh, people to provide security at a sporting event. You're, you're, you're hiring police officers who are going to do policing. You're, you're basically creating a, a, a private police force. And in some cases, I think St. Louis, the complaint was they were even raising the wage. And I, and I alluded to it earlier. They were even raise, raising the wage so that even if St. Louis could afford to pay overtime, they couldn't compete with the wage paid by the private company. So what was an officer going to do? An officer is going to go to work for that, for that private company. And, and that kind of, the kind of separation of what's in the community's interests and what's in the interest of private wealth, it, it grows, it grows bigger and bigger. Talk to me about Detroit, Mark. I know you mentioned uh, something about the city of Detroit and what they had going on. Yeah, briefly, actually, uh, I had to hear someplace an article. I'll do the, my best to, to uh, recall it. I have another article in front of me, but in short, it's similar to St. Louis, but the city of Detroit, which was, it's, it's actually better now. The article I was reading was from about seven years ago. 
but it gave a, a lot of foundation um, about private policing. And although it's a very, very left-wing, left-leaning publication I was reading from, I thought it was a pretty good job. It was pretty even-handed about the background, private law enforcement, how it was affecting Detroit. In short, there were people in Detroit that were suing, that were suing the city because they were saying that the city was actually funding a private, private law enforcement a private security entity rather than funding the police department. Now this, this goes way back before George Floyd. Again, this is, I think 2015 or 2016 was the article. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. And I say, wait a minute, you're directing these, these public funds for private security for XYZ entities when it should be going into the public kitty for public law enforcement, government law enforcement. And that was it. And at the time of the article, it was the, the litigation was still in progress. I didn't follow up to find out whatever happened to that. But that was one of the, we, we talked about this earlier on, basically mixing the, the, some of the public funding for private purposes and how that actually looks when, when these people are deployed into different communities. So that's what that was there. But that was, again, that was public funding from, my, from what I understand for private security, not on-duty officers working private security. Well, almost the inverse, right? Yeah, you know, what we're talking almost about, the on a, on a, yeah. especially in St. Louis, what I saw in Chicago, but really St. Louis, I think, is, is the most interesting one because, again, it's people in uniform, in cars that say police, and, and they're addressing the crime problem that the person writing the checks is asking them to address, not the police chief. Right. What, else, what else have you seen on this issue, Mark? What, what else do you have in front of you there? So actually, I found an article, I found a, a paragraph in an article real quick. I, I have so many articles laid around here. It says that this is about the Detroit, this, and there's more to the lawsuit, and here it is. Mm -hmm. The American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU of Michigan, took up the group's case, this is the, the community, filing a federal lawsuit in January, again, this is back in 2015, uh, in January against the Detroit 300 Conservancy and Guard Smart guards mark and the city of detroit has agreed this month on a series of interim rules safeguarding first amendment activities at all of the city's public parks regardless of whether they are managed privately or publicly so in other words this group part of their um their grievance was that these private security companies were actually violating some of their first amendment activities and again they were private right that it Right. So here's the thing. This is very, one of the things I'm glad you actually hit on this. It forced me to go back and look at my own notes here. This is one of the issues about private security. In other words, people always talk about, oh, that person over there violated my first amendment rights, or this company violated my first amendment rights or this right or whatever. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, or as I say, lag bag, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a private citizen cannot violate your First Amendment rights. Only the government can do that, or an agent of the government can do that. So this is where another aspect, and we get to do a whole show just on this aspect of it, but this is one of the aspects about, quote-unquote, private policing. Are they really police? What authority do they have? And how and when are they beholden to the Constitution? So this is a whole whole bag of issues we could talk about 
and this is what some of the things that were addressed in this lawsuit uh, in De- in Detroit. Again, I don't know where the lawsuit ended up, but yeah, and like, very how complicated do you fi- stuff. So, so Mark, let me follow up on that. So, how would you file a civil rights violation lawsuit if if right. one of those if you were beaten up by one of those cops, but he's working at that particular point in time, he's working on the private payroll, right? So this is this is exactly right. And again, the Iowa Patrol, you know, has many problems that I had being a manager with the Iowa Patrol, like any any uh, big mouth person like me would. I love the Iowa Patrol because they've so carefully thought these things out about how how much liability can arise when you start mixing the two and letting your officers do certain things off duty. How how do you address that if your officer is off duty? They're getting paid by a private entity, but they, they're accused of, of taking enforcement action based on somebody's race when they're off duty. Right. How do you resolve that? Again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. And I, I would never want to be in that position as someone trying to resolve that. It's a very, very complicated thing. Are they acting as a private citizen who's authorized to carry a gun and, and, and use handcuffs? Or are they still a representative of the government, which makes them liable to violate one's civil rights? But if they're not a, a government agent, a government representative, then they're not liable for that. The only recourse for someone would be a civil suit. That's all there is to it. The other thing, you know, uh, but again, it would just it would be for whatever damages that they they might pose to a court. And to see how that works out on a strictly civil basis, but as far as I can, I can tell, not a constitutional basis. If the person, if the officer is actually a, working as a private citizen, so extremely complex things. Um, uh, I was going to say something ab- about that. Now, by the way, when you're when you are wearing, when you are wearing a patch insignia, a legitimate one, uh-huh. even sometimes I wear. A shirt here, but it's not an official high patrol badge. It's a, it's a shirt anybody can buy off the rack and things like that. I always tell everybody I'm I'm no longer law enforcement. I have no peace officer authority. I don't even live in the state where I was a cop. Things like that. But if you're actually wearing an authentic current patch insignia and you're in a vehicle that says St. Louis Police Department, to me that says no matter what you are, if you take any kind of enforcement action. You're a representative of that department, which means you're representative of the government, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. And that government is li- is liable. That agency is liable for whatever conduct you engage in, even if you're quote unquote off duty. That's a fascinating part of it right there that I hadn't even thought of. Um, is where who where I mean to put it real simply, where does the liability sit? Where does the liability for conduct for the police officer's conduct sit when they're not on the government's payroll, but they're 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 operating on the government's authority. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where it is. What else on this topic, Mark, do people need to need to know about? Well, I think I think one of the things is look, we from our inception, we've we've always been as I said, to this country, we've always been a mix of of public and private rule enforcer enforcers. Until so public law enforcement government trained and sponsored law enforcement from its inception from constables all the way up to what we have now to sheriffs and chiefs of police and things like this and 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 mixed with 
private private security. Uh, you go back to Carnegie and the, the, these other titans of industry back in the 19th century, and they all had private police forces. They were private security forces. And by the way, many of those forces engaged in some, some in my opinion, downright criminal activity, but they were still private entities. But because Carnegie and and Rockefeller had the money to do this, they they were they had tremendous political influence, tremendous leverage with government, and could get away with a lot of this stuff. Was it was it right? No, but was it still a private sector? Yes. So that's a grand scale. But so nothing's changed in the sense that there's there's a mixture. It's always going to be a mixture. I am a free market person. If someone or some group or some community can afford to supplement their sworn law enforcement personnel with private security, not private cops, totally different thing. That sounds more like St. Louis. But if you can su supplement your, your community with private security, having eyes, having an early warning system, just like many of us have security uh, systems in our house, it's private, we pay for it. I say, why not? As long as the two are bifurcated, as long as it would hope that these, these private companies do a good job of training and holding accountable their employees, I'm all for private security, but I'm absolutely opposed to mixing the two. It's interesting because there is a fine line there. And when you talk about privatized, quote, security, if you do not authorize law enforcement officers to do that work, right? What happens to the vetting? Are you getting a lower quality person now, a less trained person filling that role where perhaps there might be other than other concerns with having that person out there doing security? So it's definitely, it's definitely a challenge to find the right mix. I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Anything else, Mark, before we close it out? Now it's a it's fascinating topic, Bill. I'm glad you invited me to talk about it. You always come up with some really, really impactful topics and uh, say, do we have any more? I think you and I are not afraid of talking. So we, we probably have tons, tons more to talk about this, but I think for this time, I think we both added a lot to the conversation and that's about it for me on it. Yeah. So, so let me, let me close just by reminding people where this now perceived inequality comes from. I'm going to quote a gentleman named David, David Sklansky. He's a professor of criminal law and procedure at Stanford University. Okay. He says, public policing for all its problems, and it has many, many problems, does represent a commitment to protect people equally not based on their wealth or political power. So the privatization of policing represents a retreat from that promise. So let me remind everybody, when we hear about a retreat from the representation of public policing, where does that come from? That comes from, make no mistake about it, and I know Mark, you'll back me up on this, it comes from the defund the police movement. When we reduce funding and reduce policing in our cities, there's going to be one group or one part or some parts of the population that do not tolerate that, that do not agree with that, and that have the financial wherewithal to create a two-tier system where they will get the policing 
that they want, that they need, and that they deserve, then unfortunately other parts of the community will not. So keep that in mind when you hear about privatized policing people. Be educated, know the truth, and know where this problem has come from. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.